I will begin by asking myself a very simple question, which is probably a question that you either explicitly asked me, as some of you did, or implicitly asked me, which was why meditate upon the last four things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. This seems like a very f strange thing to do. And many people asked me, why would we meditate upon them in Advent? A lot of people were like, well, you know, we could see why we would meditate upon death, judgment, heaven, and hell. But that seems like more of a Lenten thing. And I said, actually, it's, that's not the case. It's actually better in Advent. So I will answer those first two questions. I'll give an apologia of why I chose these four topics. The first is just in general, why should we meditate upon the last four things and specifically death? And I think the easiest answer is just that this is a meditation which is praised throughout sacred scripture. So if you look at the book of Sirach, chapter 7, it says, in all you do, remember the end of your life, and you will never sin. In all you do, remember the end of your life, your death, and you will never sin. Later on in the same book, it says, remember that death does not tarry. Do good to friends before you die, and reach out and give to them as much as you can. Peter, in his letter, he says, The end of all things is near, therefore be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. If you notice our Lord actually in the Gospels, in many parables, he's giving parables on the last things, on death, on judgment, on heaven and hell. And so if we consider our Lord's words worthy to meditate upon, which all of us obviously would, then we can say that this is a practice which God himself commends. So God desires that we meditate upon the last things. And if you look in the tradition of the, spirit, the, the Catholic spiritual life, you will notice that there are sort of common threads throughout. In any field of study that I've ever been in, there's like principles, there's like fundamentals. So, you know, in chess, there's certain fundamentals of developing your pieces. In sports, there are certain fundamentals. In warfare, there's certain fundamentals. Every science has certain fundamentals, certain principles, certain things which you should do. And if you look at the spiritual life, you see the same thing. Like a cross, whether you're a Franciscan, a Dominican, a Jesuit, a Carmelite, there are certain things which every spiritual master says that the Christian people should do. Be devoted to our Lord in the Eucharist. Receive the sacraments regularly. Be devoted to Our Lady. Read the lives of the saints. Spiritual reading in general. These are practices which are all praised. But another one is all the saints that I have read who are masters in the spiritual life recommend that we meditate upon the last four things often. So St. Francis de Sales thought we should meditate upon it often. St. Anthony of Padua thought you should meditate upon it often. St. Alphonsus is probably the most famous. He wrote a book called Preparation for Death, which is just a series of meditations upon death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Even the, in the olden days, the Capuchin Franciscans used to eat dinner with a skull on the table to remind them of their deaths. So it's very, very common in the spiritual tradition to meditate upon death. It's something which all the spiritual masters think is a good idea. And why is that? Death is always put forth as this reality that we must face. And I know that's very, very foreign in the modern world because we live in a very sanitized world. So we try and hide things we don't like. And one thing which we can hide is death. And if you think about it, 200 years ago, this would not have been possible. You would have killed animals for food. You would have not sent your elderly family to nursing homes because they didn't exist. They would have died in your house. And you would have seen it. And you would have been exposed to it. And you would have had to deal with it as a human being. You would have had to process it. 
And what does this mean? The modern world, we've tried to sanitize everything. And so things which we don't like, things which make us uncomfortable, we tend to push away. And I think we should not do that with the last four things. I think that was one of the things, that was one of the spiritual takeaways I took away during COVID, was for the first time in a long time, the West was faced with death and the Western world could not handle it. They just melted down. And we shouldn't do that. Because ultimately in the spiritual tradition, the reason why you meditate upon death is because you recognize that you should prepare for it by living a good life. It spurs you on to live a good life. And that will be the theme in all of the things which I talk about through Advent, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. All of them should encourage you to live a good life, to take care of the things which you need to take care of. And I saw this, I've been reading the biography of Isaac Jogues, who was a Jesuit missionary up in Canada, and he preached to the Hurons, the Iroquois, and he was eventually martyred. But what's interesting is Jogues and Brebeuf, who were kind of the two uh, main Jesuits, when Jogues is arriving to preach to the natives, uh, Brebeuf, who's sort of the veteran Jesuit who's been around for a while, he's giving them advice on how to be a good preacher to the Huron Indians. And some of it's very, very practical, like help them carry their canoes, right? Don't get sand in their canoe. Don't show up late when they want to leave. But Brebeuf also mentions something interesting. He says, we are constantly in danger of death. And the Jesuits were. They, the Hurons were constantly threatening them. The Iroquois, the Mohawks were constantly threatening them. And so they were always in danger of death. And so what Brebeuf says is you have to always be ready to die. You have to always be ready to go before the throne of God and to make an accounting of your life. And so Brebeuf is constantly making sure the Jesuits are going to confession, that they're receiving the Eucharist, that they're praying, that they're doing all the things which they should do so that they are ready for death. And I want you to imagine for a second how holy you would be if you lived your life every day like this. Before Mass begins with my servers, I always say a prayer before Mass. I say, Lord, help us to pray this Mass as if it were our first Mass, our last Mass, and our only Holy Mass. Our first Mass, our last Mass, our only Holy Mass. There will come a day when that prayer will be true. I will say that prayer, and that will be the last Mass which I ever celebrate. And imagine... If every day you lived it spiritually as if you were going to die or as if you had to make an accounting of yourself before the Lord, you would have tremendous fervor when you went to adoration. You would pray your rosary probably better than you have ever prayed it because you know it's going to be the last one you pray. You would pray the Mass with a degree of intensity and fervor which you do not usually have. You would love your neighbor with a great degree of fervor because it's your last chance. You would exhort your kids or your parents or your family members to be faithful because it's the final chance you have to encourage them in the gospel. You would do everything with a high degree of intentionality and you would do everything with a great degree of fervor. And that's what Jogues and Brebeuf had to do. And they did that day in and day out. And over time, they got to be very, very holy. And so that's sort of the idea of meditating upon death, judgment, heaven, and hell is that you have to prepare for it by living a good life. And implicit to all of this, underneath all of these last things, is the idea that the Christian should not be afraid of death. The reason why the Capuchins can eat dinner with a skull on the table, or they used to back in the day, is because they recognized that through Christ, there was victory over death. And as long as they were united to Christ, 
as long as they had confessed their sins and they were in a state of grace, then death had no power over them. They did not need to fear it. And so they could sort of look it in the eye. Where the modern world does not. The modern world fears death because there's no faith. So that's why you should meditate upon the last four things, often. Why you do it in Advent specifically, as many people don't recognize this, Advent is supposed to be a penitential season. It's supposed to be like a mini Lent. So what you should do, and I hope you do, you have a week now to plan this, is whatever you planned on giving up for Lent, you should give it up for Advent. It should be like your trial run. It should be a mini Lent. And the first time I ever did this, actually, I embraced this, was my final year of seminary, and it was like the best Advent I ever had. The the penance I was going to do in Lent, I did in Advent, got through it. I celebrated Christmas with greater fervor than I ever had because I actually had penance beforehand. So that's what you should treat Advent as. You will notice there's no Gloria during Advent. So a reminder, it's a penitential season because you are preparing for the coming of Christ. But you will notice early on in Advent, it's the coming of Christ is twofold. It's obviously the coming of Christ into the world at Christmas, but a lot of the readings reference the end of time. And so you're also, because each one of us is preparing for Christ to come again in the last judgment, every Advent is supposed to remember, to remind you to prepare for that second coming of Christ. So there's already this thread of the last things in Advent. And you got that, of course, already with the Sunday of Christ the King, right? Today's gospel references the last judgment. And this, will, this theme will continue early on in Advent. So that's why it actually makes sense to do this in Advent. Okay, so now I'll talk a few things about death, and then I'll give you some practical things, ultimately. So the first thing is sacred scripture always points out that death entered into the world through sin. Paul says in Romans, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. So essentially, had Adam and Eve never sinned, then God, in a supernatural way, would have not allowed death to enter the world. So death is a result of sin. And you see this if you read the Genesis narrative in light of covenants. So in the ancient world, there was this idea of what is called a covenant. And in the modern world, the closest thing to a covenant would be like a treaty, kind of. And when the, in the ancient world, because they were agrarian people, everything is very visceral and it's very symbolic. And so when you would enter into a covenant in the ancient world, what you would do is you would take an animal and you would cut it in two and you'd split the animal in two. And then you would walk between the animal and you would pronounce curses upon yourself if you broke the covenant. You would say, if I break the covenant, may I become like this animal? May I die? May I be split in two? And then you would take the blood of the animal and you would sprinkle it upon both parties. They were now bound sort of by blood. So you see this like in Exodus, when God is entering into a covenant with Israel, Moses sprinkles the people with blood, and then he sprinkles the altar. That signifies the sprinkling of the two parties, God and his people, with blood. So as certain biblical scholars have pointed out, in Genesis, when God is talking to Adam and Eve, he's using covenantal language. And so he's entering into a covenant with mankind. And so in the ancient world, if a covenant was broken, there had to be death. The offending party had to die. And so as soon as Adam breaks the covenant, he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death then enters the world. And death reigns all the way until the end of time. Christ is sort of in a defeated eternal death for us, but we still have our natural death until the last 
the, the last judgment. So that's how death came into the world. It's a result of sin. So if you don't like death, then you can't like sin either. It is pointed out by the early Christians that in a way, death was an act of mercy by God because once Adam and Eve had sinned, now they were outside of the friendship of God. They were no longer in a state of grace. And so to live forever outside of the friendship of God would actually be a great punishment. That, that's what hell is, is to live apart from God. And so death gave us a way to sort of pay a temporal punishment for our sin. We didn't have to live forever without God. We wouldn't be in exile apart from God forever. So there's an element in which it is just, but there's also mercy. That's everything God does. There's both justice and both mercy. And so some of the qualities of death, which the spiritual writers, they talk about, is one is that it is certain. You see this throughout sacred scripture. 2 Samuel says we, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground. Paul talks about it is appointed for mortals to die once and then the judgment. The book of Sirach says do not rejoice over anyone's death. Remember that we all must die. So sacred scripture always is like, look, we've all sinned. In Adam, we have all sinned because we inherit his corrupted human nature now. And so we are all going to die. So it's a fact of life. We have to deal with it. We can't run from it. That's the first thing. And so we are encouraged then to make decisions in light of this fundamental fact. And this is important. When St. Alphonsus would have his meditations on death, he would have these very like graphic meditations because he was very, he was very good with prose and so he could evoke emotions. But he would meditate upon like the body corrupting in the grave and being devoured by worms and all of that. And he'd say, look at you guys, you spend all of this time on things that get devoured by worms and you don't spend time on what is important for eternity. That's the main thought of death is we should ask ourselves, how much time do we spend storing up for ourselves treasure upon earth? How much time do we spend on earthly things which ultimately end at death? And how little time then do we spend on eternal things, on virtue, on good works, on loving God? And so we have to ponder this. This is, you know, when our Lord, he's talking about store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. The fact of the matter is, is many of the things which we have and which we love and which we are too attached to, we don't get to take with us at death. And so we should try and live our life in light of eternity. And we should try and focus on things that actually matter long term and not just temporal things. I remember, I think I've told this story before, but it was one of the key moments in my discernment in seminary. My grandfather has, had died and I was, I was kind of waffling back on seminary. I didn't really want to go because it was going to be hard and I was going to have to give up things and you know all those things that millennials don't like. And I was like, well, you know, I could have this great life. I had this accounting degree, which I thought was all right. And I remember standing in the, in the uh, cemetery when they had just put my grandfather in the ground and I'm like looking out across all of these graves and I remembered this line by St. John Chrysostom. He said, look out amongst the graves and tell me who is rich and who is poor. And his point is you can't tell because they're all decaying. And I remember standing there in the cemetery, I was like, yeah. It's like, I have way too much love for earthly things that don't matter. 
and I should lay down earthly things, and I should take up in my life heavenly things, and I should store up for myself treasure in heaven, because someday I'm also going to be in the ground, and I'm also going to decay. And that was like this key intellectual moment in my, in my discernment, where for the first time I actually began to view things in light of God, and in light of heaven, in light of hell, in light of the last judgment, in light of death. And spiritual writers would say that is wisdom, to view all things in light of God. And so we should just ask ourselves, the, the worldly things which we have, why do we have them? If we have them for their own sake, then we have them in vain, because someday we're going to give them up. If we have them because they help us spread the kingdom of God, if we have earthly things and we use them to glorify God and to save souls, including our own, then you have them for the right reasons. But if you have them solely for their own sake, then they are essentially vanity. The second idea of death is, so it's certain, you will all die, I will die someday. The second thing is the time is uncertain. And this is actually, I think, a great grace which God gives us, because I know myself. And I know if God told me I wasn't going to die till I was 70, I would be super lazy spiritually until I was about 65. I would live in vain. And most of you are probably like, yeah, we'd probably do the same thing too. The very fact that I don't know when I will die means I always have to be prepared for it. That's the great theme of our Lord in so many of his parables, is always be prepared to give an accounting of your life. And that, I think, is a great key, is that we do not know when we will die. Many of us probably will not die tonight, but we could. But the fact of the matter is you don't want to risk all eternity on that. You always want to make sure you are ready to go before the judgment seat of God. You don't want to be caught unprepared. And that's all those, those um, parables in the gospel with like the, the wise and the foolish virgins and the foolish virgins don't have any oil. The spiritual interpretation is they were not ready to die. And then they had to appear before the throne of God and they don't have any grace. And so I love the great parable, Luke 12, when he tells his, the, our Lord tells his um, people a parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will, pull, I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. So you always want to be prepared to die. That's the key. You want to live like Isaac Jokes and pray boo. You always want to live every day like this might be your last one on earth. And God, notice that God always gives you the means to be prepared to die. If you need to go to confession, go to confession. You should go to mass. You should go to adoration. You should love, say, I love you to your kids and your spouse, and you should be kind to your neighbor, and you should do all those things every day of your life. And then you'll be ready. You have nothing to fear. If we have apprehension towards death, it's because we're not living out our state of life properly. There's some flaw in our spiritual life. And so we should fix that. But we should meditate upon death and the fact that we don't know when we will die so that we'll be, we will be motivated to fix that. So it's certain we will all die, but the time when we will die is uncertain, so we always have to be prepared. The other thing, and I've already touched on it, which the spiritual writers always talk about, is death is the great equalizer. Job says, the small and the great are there, and the slaves are free from their masters. Job says, one dies in prosperity, another dies in bitterness of soul, but they end up in the same place. 
And James talks about how the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. And Peter, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. So death stands to all of us as the great equalizer. This was that great insight I had when I was discerning, right? Is that ultimately all of the things which we acquire on earth, we don't get to take with us. And so we have to ponder, we have to see things with wisdom. But you will notice also in sacred scripture, death is presented as making us all sort of end up you know, in the grave decaying. But sacred scripture does make one key distinction amongst the dead. And you'll notice it in today's gospel. It is the distinction between the just and the unjust. That is it. At death, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you had a mighty princely title or you were just a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a priest or lay or whatever. What does matter is, were you just or were you not? What were the good works which you did in Christ? Did you take care of the things you needed to take care of? That is always the distinction and the distinction is, is that the wicked, when they die, it's essentially this tragic thing. But when the just, when they die, they go off into peace. And so that's the great distinction in death, is were we just or were we unjust? All right. So I said one of the key themes is to prepare for death. You ponder death so that you prepare for it, right? Without fear, with full trust in Christ, in full trust in his resurrection, that he conquered death, and that through your baptism and through his grace, you also will conquer death, as long as you do what is required of you. So how do you prepare for death? I always say there's what I call remote and proximate preparation. Remote preparation is how you prepare for death long before you die. Proximate preparation is how you prepare, prepare for death when you're on your deathbed and you're trying to get me to come visit you, right? So remote preparation for death is easy, right? You, well, it's not easy. What you have to do is, is easy. Well, it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. You have to live a good life, right? So you have an opportunity in life, a tremendous opportunity to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven because God repays each one according to what they do. And so the saints, the lofty glory of Our Lady, the lofty glory of St. Francis of Assisi, he gets to keep that glory for all eternity. So as long as God is God, St. Francis of Assisi has his crown of glory. So as you can see, this great Franciscan was actually a wise investor because he gave up all things for 50, 60 years, and now for all eternity, he reaps the reward of his, of his investment. I can tell you as a former accountant, that's a wise thing to do, right? You don't trade a long-term gain for a short-term gain necessarily. So you want to live a good life, and you want to store up treasure for heaven by being holy, by loving God, by loving neighbor by doing good works, by confessing your sins, by doing penance, by praying for the souls in purgatory, by teaching your kids the faith, by preaching the gospel, going to mass. All of those things are the best way in which you can prepare for death. And the closer you get to God, the less you fear just in general, and you will not fear death. When Paul the apostle talks about death, he talks about it as this delightful thing, because when he dies, he gets to go and see his beloved, and that he's excited about that. As he says, for me, death is gain. Because he knows he has given everything which he has to God. And so he's, he's all right with dying. He gets to go be with the Lord. I always remind penitents this. Never gamble with eternity. So sometimes 
you know, we commit sin and we tell ourselves, well, I'll go to confession like next week, or maybe I'll go next month. And I always say, why would you gamble with eternity? Like, yeah, you'll probably make it next month, but the one out of a thousand times that you don't make it, you're going to pay for it for all eternity. So always be prepared to die by living a good, good death. Also, you should pray for a happy death. St. Joseph is the great patron of a happy death because he got to die, as tradition holds, with Our Lady and Our Lord at his bedside. That's a good way to die. And so you should pray for, to St. Joseph that you have a happy death, that you die in peace. You should always pray that you die with the sacraments, that you got a chance to confess your sins, all of that. So you want to examine your life. Like Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And think to yourself, what do I have to do? If I was going to die tomorrow, what things would I have to change? And then change them now. And pray for a happy death. When death comes, right? I think this is very important. When you are in the hospital and you call the priest, you want to do a couple things. You want to call early. Like as soon as you go to the hospital, you should call a priest. Because... Ideally, when you receive the last rites, you receive three sacraments. You go to confession one last time. You receive Holy Communion one last time. It's called viaticum from the Latin viator, which means to travel. So it's your food for the journey, to the journey to eternal life, and, you, and you're anointed. If you wait too long and you're unconscious, you cannot go to confession, obviously, and you're not going to be able to receive Holy Communion. I will try and get you Holy Communion. I will break the host into a tiny piece and shove it onto your tongue if I have to so that you can receive the Lord one last time. But call the priest earlier rather than later. And for many of you, this means you have to make sure your family knows this. Like, pound this home into the, the minds of your children of like, look, as soon as I'm going down and they go to the hospital, call the priest so he can come so I can receive Jesus one last time. Like, don't wait. Because people panic. And especially if we have family members who are not believers, they don't know how to handle death because the modern world doesn't know how to handle death. And so when many people are dying, the first thing they do is they try and deny it. And they try and act like it's not happening. No, don't do any of that. We have nothing to fear with death. We can look it in the eye. You start going down, call the priest. We'll come. You can go to confession one last time. You can receive the last rites. The other thing you want to do, I have never understood this. I show up sometimes at hospitals. Well, I, I, I know why they do this, but it doesn't make any sense. I show up at hospitals, and they're like watching the brewers as they're dying. You're not going to care what the brewer's record is on your deathbed. <laughs> and like, I just have to be blunt with this. Like, it doesn't matter, guys. Like, seriously, it, it's a professional sports team. I know the brewers are important and all that to many of you, but it doesn't matter from the light of eternity. So when you're dying, this is your last few moments to, like, merit things in the kingdom of heaven. This is your last few moments to like pray for your kids. This is your last few moments to tell God you're sorry for your sins. This is your last few moments to like do good. And if you look in sacred scripture, when all of the patriarchs are dying, that's precisely what they do. They call their kids in and they give them one final blessing and they remind them to live the gospel. They're not watching the equivalent of the brewers of the ancient world. They're preparing themselves to die, and they're taking it very seriously. That's why you should be on your deathbed. You shouldn't try and dull the pain and the fear of death by these worldly things. Because if you've lived a good life and, you're, and you've meditated upon it all Advent, right, you'll be ready for it. And so, yeah, call your kids in one last time. Give them one last final piece of advice, which they'll probably ignore for 20 years, and then they'll listen to you down the road, right, because that's what kids do. That's what I did. 
pray for them. Offer your death for some purpose. Unite your sufferings with Christ for some purpose. That is an extraordinarily pleasing thing to God to do. And so then in your final moments, you are living a saintly life and you're striving for great perfection in your final moments. You can't do better than that. That's how you want to die. One last thing, I think. So along with preparing for death, one of the things you want to prepare are your funeral plans. And this is very, very important, especially if you have family members, kids who do not practice the faith. You want to make sure you have funeral masses said for you. Because the fact of the matter is, is only the perfect enter directly into the kingdom of heaven. And I know most of you, and I know myself, and I know the people that I anoint. Most of us are not perfect. So like if I drop down and die tonight, don't let some priest come into my funeral homily and be like, oh, he's in a better place right now. He's in heaven. No, I'm not. I'm burning in purgatory. So please, please pray for me. Make sure you have funeral masses said to you. And maybe the best way to do that is just to leave money to the church directly for that purpose. So you have masses said for you. Make sure you have funeral plans. Be very, very specific with your family members that you want a funeral mass. You don't want some word service at the funeral home. You want a mass. You want a mass offered for you. That's not a selfish act. What you want is the infinite sacrifice of Christ and the infinite merit of the holy sacrifice of the mass to be offered for your soul one last time. That's a good thing. You should desire that. And it's your right as a Catholic to have a, a mass said for you. So make sure your funeral plans are very, very clear. Make sure that your family knows you want to have a funeral. And then I would say, I was debating whether or not I was going to talk about this, but I am. The church allows cremation, but I would strongly encourage you not to do it. Um, this is one of the great mistakes we've made in the last 60 years in the church and in the priesthood, is we mix up permitted versus preferred. So it is permitted to be cremated, but it is by no means the church's preference. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, traditionally, in the ancient world, the, the people who, who burned their dead were pagans. And this was always how Judaism and Christianity for many, many years was separated from the pagans, is we didn't burn our dead, we would bury them. And you see in the book of Tobit, Tobit is actually risking his life to bury the dead because he recognizes this is a good thing. And he doesn't want the pagans to get the bodies. And Raphael, the archangel, when he appears to him, tells him that this was pleasing in the sight of God. The other reason why I think you don't want to, if possible, be cremated is the funeral mass itself. So what happens at the funeral mass is you relive baptism. So we put a white cloth white funeral pall over the coffin. That symbolizes your baptismal garment, the white garment. We process in from the back of church, as if in the baptismal rite it talks about processing in from the font in. And the reason you're reliving this baptismal rite is what it symbolizes. So in baptism, we spiritually die with Christ so that we can spiritually rise with him. What the funeral rite is saying is now you have physically died with Christ and we want to physically rise with him. And you cannot sort of recreate this symbolism, which I think is very, very beautiful, and I think has a strong psychological effect upon the people there, if you're not in a coffin. And that's why the church does point out that if you get cremated, the preference is to do it after your funeral mass. So we can do all of the symbolism 
of the funeral mass. I can put the book of the gospel on your casket. I can put a rosary, if you had a devotion to Our Lady, on the casket. For my parents, they will be buried, my mother will be buried with the maniturgium, which was the garment which washed the chrism off my hands when I was ordained. My dad will be buried with the, with the stole that I wore when I heard my first confession. All of this is not, this symbolism, which I think is very beautiful, very Catholic, very sacramental, is not possible if you're not in a casket. So you can be cremated. The church allows it, especially if you can't afford it. If there's nothing you can do, that's fine. If you didn't know any better, and many of our family members have been cremated because we didn't know any better, that's, that it is what it is. It's not like they sinned in doing it. But I would strongly encourage you to seriously consider not being cremated, to be buried, to relive the funeral mass more fully. It also is a good reminder of the sacredness of the body, and we live in a world where the sacredness of the human body is completely rejected. And if you insist that you're not going to be cremated because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that matters evangelically to your kids. That's like one last little moment of you preaching the gospel. Take care of your body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It also more fully, if you're in a casket, I think, reminds you of the resurrection. The church admits, like, look, God can reconstitute a human body out of anything. He created all things out of nothing. So he can reconstitute a human body from ash. But if you're in a casket, the idea of awaiting the resurrection, especially back in the day, used to be you'd be buried so that when you rose out of your coffin, you'd be facing east because Christ was coming from the east. All of that symbolism matters. We're Catholics, right? We hold to this sacramental symbolism. And all of that is lost, I think, or a lot of it is lost if we choose to be cremated. So I would, I would encourage you to be buried. I would be, encourage you to be buried with things which are sacred to you. Um, your, your rosaries, your Bibles. I want to be buried in my black vestment with the three hearts. Because not only is it important to you, but those are things which your family remembers, right? You've been trying to get all your family members to pray the rosary. If you insist that they bury you with a rosary, there's going to be somebody in your family that says, wow, that actually must be kind of important. Maybe I'll pray one for them. And then they pray a rosary, and then they're converted, and you did it, right? So I would strongly encourage you to be buried. Um, like I said, cremation is permitted, but it is by no means preferred. So... That is all I have on death. Um, does anyone have any questions? I'll take a few questions. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so because this is being recorded, I'll repeat the question. The question is, what if you're dying at 7 p.m. in the evening and no one's in the office? This is precisely why the phone system is set up that if you call the Cabrini office number, you can press like a button for if it's a sick call and it goes straight to Father Strand and I's phone. So most priests that I, that I know now, can get, you can get a hold of. So what you should do is you should keep calling until you get a hold of a priest. Um, also, the chaplains in the hospitals and the nursing homes and Catholic hospice around here are really, really good. Many of them, if you tell them you're a Catholic and you want to see a priest, they will track one down for you. And many of them know my, direct, my cell phone number and they will call me directly. So the way it is now, and every young priest takes this seriously, that if, if, if we need to go anoint somebody, we go. I mean, we go in the middle of the night. So you should be able to get a hold of a priest. This is why you should pray for more vocations, too, so we have more priests. But 
And I mean, I've been called to go to Hartford. I, if I get a call, there was a, a while back, someone was in Freighters in uh, Wauwatosa, and they got a hold of me. So I just called Father Kirk, who was in West Allis, and he went and anointed. So we're pretty good about, priests are pretty good nowadays about making sure somebody goes. So we'll get there if we can. This is why I leave my phone on at night. I told my family to stop texting me because it goes off. So I was like, I get sick calls, guys. <laughs> I don't need to get the recent newest picture of our dog, right? What does it feel like to know this Yeah, so I've been called twice in my 18 months as a priest to go in the middle of the night. One, technically, it was like 1030, but I counted it as the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> the other one was like properly in the middle of the night. So that's why I always have my phone with me. I, I know in Menominee Falls, they used to have, at St. Anthony, St. Mary's, the priest had a separate phone that they would use for sick calls, and then like one of the priests would be on, you know, you'd be like on duty, you know, and so they would call. But they were good too. I remember Monsignor Schechterly would go in the middle of the night with Father Lynn if they had to, so you just grab some coffee and go. Excellent question. Excellent question. Is last rites and anointing of the sick two different things? Last, the short answer is no. The longer answer is yes. <laughs> so anointing of the sick is, by and large, what we would call last rites. There is some differences. So in terms of the sacrament, it's the same. You anoint. With last rites, you're going to try and also have them go to confession and receive the Eucharist if you can. There's also specific prayers which you say when a soul is dying. So you say, go forth, O Christian soul. You do the litany of the saints. So there, it's basically anointing with some specific prayers for the person dying. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. I was gonna, I forgot to bring that up. So thank you. Yes. Yes. No, um, I've never had someone die in the midst of the sacrament. I've had some close. You, when you anoint a lot of people, you get very good at kind of being able to tell when someone's dying. I also, my little sister who's the pharmacist, I had, her get, I had her give me like a crash course on reading like the vitals, you know, so I can kind of see the vitals too, and I always check those. I, there are times when people are very, very close to dying, and I kind of pay attention because if they start to go, I'm just going to skip straight to the important parts, you know. I'm not going to, your father's important, but I'm not going to worry about us praying it if they're dying right then, right? I'm going to make sure they get what they need to get. Um, so, yeah. Anything else? If not, we'll pray evening prayer. Yes. Ah, appropriate disposition of ashes. Yeah, so if you have ashes, you should bury those. Um, don't leave them on your mantle. The human person is sacred, and sacred things should be buried um, so that they can await the resurrection in their body. So definitely, 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 if you have ashes, bury them. There's also prayers that are said when somebody is buried. And again, like prayer matters. All of you guys believe prayer matters. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So make sure like the committal rite is done, and they get put in the ground properly, and the ground is sprinkled with holy water, and they are blessed and all of that. So you definitely don't want to keep ashes 
around. It is sort of an irreverent way to treat the human body. You don't want to scatter them. You want to bury them in a cemetery. Um, and, and look, sometimes this happens actually fairly uh, regularly, and it's both a good and a bad thing, where people come and they say, we didn't know we were supposed to bury them. I've had ashes of you know, my great aunt for 20 years on the mantle. What should I do? And I said, well, let's, let's, let's have a committal and let's bury them. And we go out and we do it. So, I know in the year of mercy, Father Nathan told me they actually, they had a thing where it was free to have any cremains buried, like essentially the parish bought a plot, and he said, I think like 20, they had 20, 27 urns buried. He said it was really cool, it was, it, I mean, it's, you wish they would have been buried sooner, but it is still a beautiful thing that people then said, okay, we made a mistake, we'll take care of it. That's the human way. Yes. Yes, above the ground mausoleum would be considered buried. Yeah, in a sacred place. Yes. Can you explain the apostolic pardon is an indulgence? So an indulgence is the forgiveness of the temporal punishment due to sin. So this is part of the extra prayers in the last rites, is that if somebody is dying, when the priest anoints them, he also says this prayer over them, which gives them sort of one last indulgence. If they are detached from venial sin and they have all the requirements necessary for an indulgence as best as they are able, then they would receive a plenary indulgence or if not, at least a partial indulgence. So it's sort of one last chance to assist the dying in relieving the future pains of purgatory, if not absolutely removing them. So that's another reason why, you know, you want to have the priest there and make sure... Everything is taken care of. That's a good question. And one more. No? Yes. Can a priest come to a non Catholic cemetery? Can a priest come to a non Catholic cemetery? Yes. I bury people at Washington County Memorial, which I don't think is Catholic. So, so what happens if the ground has not been blessed? then I say a prayer to bless the ground, the plot, when I'm going to bury them, just to make sure they're in blessed ground. So, I imagine back in the day, people were buried all over the place, right? Kind of agrarian cultures, so. Yes, but you can be buried in a non-Catholic cemetery, and if the priest is paying attention to what he's doing, he'll bless the ground for you. You'll be all right. Yes. Yeah, if, if you are going to go the route of cremation, the, definitely the preferred way to do it would be to have the cremation occur after your funeral mass. Because then all, all the rites of the funeral mass and the placing of the book of the gospel and the coffin and the procession in all of that, at least all of that gets to occur in all of those prayers. So that's, if you are going to go the route of cremation, then I would definitely go that route. Have it done after your funeral. And don't wait too long to have a funeral. Sometimes people like wait four months because they're waiting for some kid to graduate college. Just have your funeral. Get your prayers. Get in the ground and go. Right. 
Anything else? No. Yes. Gregorian masses. Off the top of my head, is that when you would have like 30 masses said for you? So I don't know that much about it. I remember it mentioned once in seminary. There was a tradition of having 30 masses in a row, 30 days in a row said for you. I know it's still done. I knew a Carmelite priest who, since he wasn't at a parish, he, he had told me he had celebrated these Gregorian masses for people. Because a parish priest, I'm not going to have 30 free intentions in a row. So he had done it. I don't know the history of it. But I do know it, it's a thing. It still was a thing. It's kind of a beautiful thing, I think, 30 masses. Um, I always thought it's cool in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, when you die as a priest, every other priest in the Archdiocese is mandated to celebrate a mass for you. So, you know, if you have like 120 priests in the Archdiocese, or however many we have, that you get quite... You got a decent chance. I got a fighting chance. <laughs> it is a beautiful thing. Just it, 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 the bonds of the priesthood then are united. So it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing. Yes. You, you cannot merit in purgatory. So I always point this out to people. Purgatory is not supposed to be the normal way to sanctity. What's the normal way to sanctity, and if you read like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila as they talk about the spiritual life, you see this. What's supposed to happen is God allows various trials and difficulties in your life, and you accept them in this life, and you embrace these crosses, and they perfect you, and you grow in love, and f your faith is purified and all of that. And then throughout your life, you, re you reach spiritual perfection, and then you die, and you go off into the kingdom of heaven. Purgatory is essentially a plan B where the mercy of God's like, well, my people don't really do what they're supposed to do, and they kind of are sluggish, and they never accept their crosses, and they're hard-headed and all this, and they don't reach perfection. So I'm going to essentially then force it upon them in purgatory. And that's really what purgatory is, is God's taking matters into his own hand. But if you accept all of those crosses in this life, then you, you merit. You merit a greater degree of glory. You're conformed more and more to Christ. So not only are you purified, but you're also perfected and conformed to Christ more fully for all eternity. In purgatory, it's just like God's like, well, you, you weren't working with me, so now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take care of it. And it's a great act of mercy that he does that because he wouldn't have had to. He'd said, if you don't die perfect, that was it. So purgatory is probably where most of us will end up, but it's not supposed to be that way. In an ideal world, none of us. We would all reach spiritual perfection by practicing the spiritual life throughout our life, by embracing our crosses, by growing in faith, hope, and love, all of that, and we die in a state of perfection and go straight on. Yes. I will talk about that on next week, on the last judgment, actually. Um, this, the soul immediately goes off to heaven or hell after death. The second coming of Christ refers to the general resurrection, but the soul immediately after death is judged and receives even heaven or hell. But I'll talk about that next week.
Yes, one more, and then we'll pray you your prayer. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't risk it. If, if you're unsure if somebody's close to death, I would just call a priest. Because I have learned the closer you get to death, the more chaotic things get, just in general. Like your family members are all freaking out and everything's chaos. And you yourself, they start to drug you up because, you know, the medical professionals are not worried about your capacity to receive the Eucharist and confess your sins. They're just trying to make sure you're not in pain. So all of that just adds this degree of chaos, which makes like the spiritual life very difficult. The spiritual life is always difficult, right? Imagine the chaos of being on the precipice of death. It just makes it more difficult. So I, if, if you're not sure, I, I would just call. Like I've never gotten mad at somebody because they called me to the hospital because they thought somebody was dying and then they didn't die. <laughs> I always just take credit. I'm like, see, look at my anointing. That was powerful. So, how communal is the anointing? So when I enter a hospital room, the first thing I do is I clear the room. I ask if I can talk to the person alone. I ask the person to go to confession. I strongly encourage them uh, to go to confession. And the longer I've been a priest, the more strongly I encourage them. After they go to confession, I go and get the family, and then we do the anointing of the sick together, communally. So the anointing of the sick can be done communally. So yeah, and I know the family likes to be there. It's always, it's beautiful. I mean, the whole rite is beautiful. The invocation of the saints and the various prayers are very, very beautiful. And the family likes being there. So I always, I always call them back in. And usually the family asks, like, what time I plan on going, if, if it's a scheduled one, so they can be there. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. And plus, you want to be there because you also want to pray for the one who is dying. I mean, you should. You should pray that they have a happy death, that they persevere in grace, that the Lord removes from them all of their sins. You can atone for their sins as well, right? So it's good to pray for the dying.